Well, uh, once again, welcome to Harvest. Uh, my name is Pastor Micah. So glad you're here worshiping with us today. And uh, we are going to just dive right back into God's Word this morning. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you today, if you maybe didn't bring one, there should be some hardback black ones there on the floor around you, underneath the chairs. You can grab one of those. And uh, we've, we were kind of in the middle of our Christmas series right now called The New King. And we've been looking at this, this Old Testament prophecy that God gave hundreds of years ahead of time about his uh, son that he was going to send to be this new king, to be the Messiah. And he gives a description of what this guy is going to be like. And so what we've been doing is kind of walking through that description piece by piece and how do we see that actually lived out? How do we see that come to fulfillment in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to be back again starting in Isaiah chapter 9. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, go to Isaiah 9. We're going to be in six, verse 6 and 7 there. Um, and then we're also going to be touching a lot in the book of John today. So if you've got another finger, maybe put that one over in John 10. That's where we're going to be starting out in John. So um, uh, as Chris said earlier, you know, we're coming up on Christmas Day here. Just to give you an official count, we are now nine days away from Christmas Anybody else just start shaking a little bit, right? Like, let's just do a little, a, a little poll this morning. Um, who is completely done with all of their Christmas shopping? Finito, in the bag, it's all done. Okay, how many got, I got a few more things left, and then I'm good. Now, who's on that list? Okay, who's like the, I think I might, maybe I should start thinking about getting started now, and who's on that list? Okay, all right, so we'll see you guys at Walgreens on Christmas Eve night. Um, all right, just getting your last minute pieces there, okay? So, um, and some of y'all are like, I'm totally okay with that. Like, I have no problem with being on that list. I'm good. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things, Christmas is a lot, uh, you know, we get a lot of play on the gifts thing. And sometimes, can we just be honest today? Sometimes it's hard to find the right gift for the, the right person. Men, can I get an amen out there from anybody? Um, sometimes us guys have a hard time finding the right gifts for especially our special someones. And so, I was just thinking about this week. I was like, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a while now. We've been married coming up on 15 years, and uh, so I've, been, I've had some good, some good years, some good moments, and maybe some not so good years and moments on the gift-giving thing, and so I thought I might just give you five quick tips uh, for some of you men on, I've learned from experience and from others about how to navigate the gift-giving um, for your wife or special someone. Um, so here's a list of what not to get your wife for Christmas, okay? What not to get your wife for Christmas. Number one, um, appliances or household items, okay? Um, it's, that's not a good play. It's not for her. That's for the house. You were going to buy it anyways. That doesn't count as a gift, all right? So that gets crossed off the list. No, nothing like that makes her do more work. That's not uh, what you want to go with for number one. Number two, um, what not to get your wife for Christmas, exercise equipment or gym memberships. Um, Nothing says Merry Christmas like you need to lose some weight, dear. Okay, so stay away from it. Even if she's saying she wants to, even if she's been talking about it, like let her make that play on her own. Like you don't need to help her out in that area, okay? I'm just trying to save you um, some, some headache here. Number three, um, cash or gift card? Like seriously, you're not even going to try? Like we actually had that conversation last night. I did that a, a little while ago, and that did not play well either. So um, stay away from the cash and the gift card. Like go buy something for your wife. I'm still learning too. You see, this is how it works. Um, anything on your list, don't get that for her. All right, whatever you want, that's not what she wants. That's, that's your list. Uh, that's what my four-year-old does for her sisters when we go shopping. She's like, oh, they're like that. Like, no, you would like that, right? Like, so stay off of your list. And then lastly, uh, what not to get your wife for Christmas, nothing at all. Um, 
even if you do the prearranged, like we're not going to do gifts this year, and you know, let's just not spend money on either. No, no, no. You still got to have something wrapped. Like even if it's a box of candy, like do something uh, to have there for her on Christmas. I'm telling you, um, just trying to help. So I, I, you know, I try to be thoughtful and creative with the gifts and stuff. And so I remember there was a couple years ago we were um, doing. Um, I think it was our anniversary, if I remember correctly. And I wanted to really get Courtney a special gift. And so I, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this, this timeline of our lives together right, and have like all these different dates that were important to us, like, you know, when we met and when we got married and the first kid and so on and so forth. And so I, I put all this work together and I put it all together, I put it on this nice canvas and I bring it home and it's all pretty and creative and I'm like, she's going to love this. And it was going really, really well until she pointed out that I put the wrong date down for our youngest daughter's birthday. Um, so now this sits in a closet at our house. And so uh, we can just talk you know, chalk that up to like hashtag epic gift fail right here. Um, and so sometimes even when you try, it doesn't always go the way you think, right? We all have those moments where we fail, where we mess up, where things aren't always what we wanted them to be. And uh, thankfully I have a very gracious and loving wife and she was um, forgiving of that. And um, we have another person in our life that's like that. And that's God the Father and Jesus the Son that they're forgiving of our failures, right? When we mess up, even when we're trying so hard, even when we're doing our best, even when we're going for it, man, we fall, we fail, we mess up. We all have those moments, and he loves us anyways. And today, that's what we're going to look at is that aspect of God that says, I love you anyways, that he is, Jesus is the picture of the everlasting Father for us. And so today, we're gonna, the main idea for the message today is this, my biggest weakness is no match for the strength of God's love. Even my biggest weakness, my biggest failure, my biggest fall is no match to the strength and the level and the capacity of God's love for me and for you. And so I wanna show you that in the text. You don't have to take my word for it. So Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, let's start there. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. First point this morning is this. Jesus proves the Father's love. As a picture of the everlasting Father, Jesus comes to prove the Father's love for his people. Now, when we start talking about this idea of of Jesus being a picture of the everlasting Father, I'm very well aware, especially maybe around this time of the year, that that word Father is kind of a loaded word for a lot of us. In our culture, where we're at in society right now, there's a lot of um, father problems and father wounds, and some of us had really great fathers, some of us had not so great fathers, but we can all agree that none of us had a perfect earthly father, right? Um, because we're not perfect. That's why humans work. And so I don't know what kind of stuff you're bringing to the table when we start talking about father today, but I want to assure you that when we're looking at the everlasting father, we're not looking at a, a subtype of whoever your dad was or a subtype of whatever kind of dad you think that you are. We're looking at a picture of the perfect, the only, the only perfect father that has ever existed, the everlasting father. And 
And I think there's four characteristics here that we're going to see that really put it on this level of being the perfect everlasting father. And that's that a father loves. Father is meant to love those that are put in his care, that he leads them. That's part of his charge as well, that he's supposed to lead them forward. He protects. He's a protector. We're going to see that as well. And a father is permanent. He's there. He stays. And uh, when Jesus came to earth in the form of a baby, Jesus came to model God's fathering on the earth. We know this from John 1.18, which says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We had that verse last week, right? That that Jesus came to be a a living picture of this is who God is. You want to know what God's like? Look at him. This is what his... This is what his job was. But what we're going to find out as we look through the life of Jesus in the book of John primarily is that Jesus didn't really use the father language much to describe himself. Right? He never called himself a father or the everlasting father. Understandably so because when we start to understand Trinitarian Christianity, we understand that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And if God the Son starts calling himself father, that could kind of get confusing can we just agree with that this morning, right? So, so Jesus never uses the Father label, but he shows us a picture of the everlasting Father, not as a Father, but as we're going to see today in John chapter 10, as a shepherd. And the same characteristics that God displays towards us as everlasting Father, Jesus is going to model as the good shepherd. So look at John chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 1 here. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." Go to verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not know, own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves, and the sheep flee, uh, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So here what we see is that Jesus as the everlasting father is going to be displayed in the person of the good shepherd. So let me show you those same four characteristics here. He says, um, the sheep, they hear my voice and they know my voice and I call them by name. Those are all expressions of that love that a father has for, or a shepherd has for his sheep, right? There's a personal relationship there. He knows them. They know him. When he speaks, they recognize his voice. They, they love that. They follow him. It's, it's a loving, personal, close type of relationship. And it says that he leads them out and they follow him. So he leads them, right? That's part of being a father. That's part of being a shepherd. And they feel safe enough to follow him. They feel safe in following him and his leadership. They trust his leadership enough to follow him out, And then he goes on in 11, he says, And I lay down my life for the sheep. He's a protector. He would rather suffer himself, possibly even die, than for one of the sheep to be harmed. He's willing to protect them even to the point of laying down his own life. And then he talks 
and, and juxtaposes, juxtaposes the shepherd to the, sh- to the hired hand. And he says the hired hand flees when the wolf comes. Because he doesn't care about the sheep. He's just there for a paycheck. So danger comes and he runs and the sheep get taken away. He says, but the, but the, the good shepherd doesn't do that. The good shepherd stays and lays down his life for the sheep. It's a permanent relationship. He says, I'm not going anywhere, even if it costs me everything. I'm staying right here with you. That's real love. Relationships, some relationships are only seasonal in your life. I'm sure you've come to understand or, or realize this by now. There are some relationships that are only seasonal. Those people are only going to stick around as long as it's beneficial for them. As long as they're getting something out of it, as long as it's somehow helping them, the moment it costs them something, they're gone. Those aren't real loving relationships. I've given you this definition many times before. I want to keep giving it to you because you need this ingrained in your heart and in your head. Love is you before me. That's what a loving relationship looks like. It's you before me. I'm putting your needs before my needs. I'm putting you first. And that's what the shepherd does. That's what an everlasting father, perfect father does, even when it costs him everything, even when it costs him his life. So we have traditions around our house. I'm sure you guys have traditions around your house for Christmas. And um, growing up in my family, one of our traditions was that we always did Christmas lists. So everybody would make a little Christmas list of the things that they would like for Christmas to kind of help, you know, people pick out gifts and stuff. And I remember as a kid, it was always like one of the greatest days when mom would come in and she would have in her hand the giant catalog, the Sears Wish Book. Anybody else remember the Sears Wish Book? Like, you remember these things? Like, you don't make them anymore. I don't think, yeah, it's like go online now and look at everything. But like, and she would bring in this giant book and she would plop it down on the coffee table and all those kids would like get around. We'd have our markers and we would just start flipping pages and just start circling stuff. Like that's how we made our list. We'd just go through this wish book and like circle everything that we wanted for Christmas. And I remember when Courtney first came into our family, this was kind of a weird thing for her because our family, they celebrated Christmas, but they, they didn't really do lists. They didn't make, like the gifts weren't like a big deal there. And so that wasn't like her thing, but she caught on quickly. Don't worry. And so we started making lists. And so we still do this with our girls today. We, we get together as a family. All right, what do we want on our Christmas list? We make the list. We send them out to the grandparents, and everybody has the thing. And it, it's, a, it's a good, it's fun. It's a, it's a good moment. But um, I was looking last week, and I came across this Christmas list from a child in Oklahoma uh, who's actually a foster child and made a Christmas list um, for, for what the family that they wanted for Christmas. I'm going to have it here on the screen. It's hard to read, so I'll read it to you. She wrote, uh, things I want in my family. I want food and water. Don't hit me. A house with running water and lights. I want love. A mom and dad don't fight. I want no drugs. Don't kill my pets. Help with school. Nice, clean clothes. No lice, no bugs in the house. Clean house. Clean bed with covers. Don't sell my toys. Treated fair. Don't get drunk. TV in house. Let me keep my games. School stuff. Nice shoes. My own comb. Soap. Nice house and safe. AC and heater. Coat. Toothbrush. Sometimes it's easy to get focused on what we don't have and lose sight of everything that we do have, right? And, and it's, it's, it's um, we all, I mean, it's, it's okay. We all have different hurts. We all have different problems. We all have different failures. 
We all have different areas where we're suffering and we're in need of things. We all get hurt and burnt by people, even people who are supposed to love us, maybe even especially around the holidays. But no matter what it is you're needing, you're wanting, no matter what it is you're going through, we can be sure that we do have the most important thing this Christmas season. We have a Father, a perfect, everlasting, heavenly Father who loves us. In spite of failures, in spite of problems, in spite of hurts and hang-ups, you have a God, you have a Father who loves you if you are following after him. Jesus shows me the love I have with the perfect heavenly Father. That was one of the reasons he came. One of the reasons he came to earth was to show us this love of the perfect everlasting heavenly father. So Jesus proves the father's love. But then point number two today, he goes even further than that. Jesus protects the father's loved ones. Jesus protects the father's loved ones. And so what I want to do now for this was I'm just going to kind of do a flyover, like 50,000 foot view of the book of John and just kind of hit several little examples of how Jesus shows the Father's love through protection, okay? I try to usually stay in one kind of passage and drill down, but this is going to just kind of be a flyover here. So just if you want to flip through with me, you can and catch these pieces in John. If you want to just write down the references, you can look them up later if you like. So the first one's in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Um, Here we see that Jesus protects from need, specifically from hunger in this case. He's been walking, he's been teaching, he's, he's kind of got this big crowd around him, and he stops and he looks back and there's 5,000 people there. And he looks at them and he, he loves them and he wants to help them. And so he says, hey, um, Philip, uh, where can we buy bread for the 5,000 people? And Philip's like, are you crazy? We ain't got that kind of money feeding 5,000 people? Like, are you, we, we, there's no place for us to do that. We, don't, we can't do that, Jesus. And Andrew's like, well, Jesus, I, I did find this one, like, you know, kid over here, mom packed him a lunch. He's got a few loaves and some fish. You want, it, you know, you want that? And, and they're like, well, that's not enough to feed 5,000 people. And Jesus says, give it here. And then in verse 10, he says, have the people sit down. Have the people sit down. And he prays and he blesses it and he asks God to make it enough. And he provides food for 5,000 people to meet their need in that moment. There's another place in one of the other gospels where he does almost the exact same thing with 4,000 people. But in that passage, it specifically says, when he looked on the crowd, he had compassion on them. He loved them. And he wanted to protect them from this hunger, from this need that they have. And so he steps up and he provides. That's one example. The next example is in John chapter 8, where Jesus protects from shame and condemnation. Here we have a woman who's been caught in adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees are, the, the religious leaders, they're dragging her into the middle of the temple. And it says that they caught her in the act, which kind of leads to some questions, right? Like, how did you catch her in the act? Like, what were you doing that you were there to catch her in the act? But nonetheless, they dragged this woman in, and they, it says they, that they placed her, verse, 13, or verse 3, placing her in the midst. So it wasn't like they just came and talked to Jesus about it. They dragged the woman in, and they throw her in the middle of the temple in front of everyone. Why? They're trying to shame her, right? They're, they're trying to, to, to bring this shame and this reproach upon this woman because of her sin. And they say to Jesus, like, Moses says we should stone her. What do you think we should do, Jesus? 
verse 7, he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they dropped their rocks and they turned tail and they walked away. And after a few minutes and everybody's kind of gone, Jesus finally turns to her and he says, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Oh, don't, don't be fooled. They were definitely condemning her until Jesus stepped in to protect. She said, no one, Lord. He said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Was, what was Jesus doing here? Was Jesus excusing her sin? Was he, was he condoning it? Was he brushing it aside like it wasn't important? Absolutely not. He was looking it square in the eye, and he confronted it, and he forgave it, and he stepped in to protect her from the shame and condemnation that was tied to her sin. Jesus loved to protect God's loved ones. Another example, John chapter 9. Jesus protects from lies. Here we have a man who was born blind. And that doesn't give us a whole lot of context, but they're walking up in, in verse 1, and the disciples ask Jesus this question. They say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, what they're implying here was there was, there was kind of this Jewish teaching or thought pattern back then that if you were born or if you had this ongoing debilitating disease, like you were blind or lame or whatever going on, that that was related to some sin, either in your life or in the life of your ancestors, and it caused you to have this physical problem. And so the disciples here are asking, whose fault is it? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus is like, no, neither. All right? So he's starting to expose this cultural lie that has kept this man in this state for so many years. And in verse 6, this is like one of the craziest stories in the Bible. And in verse 6, Jesus comes up and he spits on the ground. And it says he made mud with the saliva. And then he put the mud on the guy's eyes. Just for a second, it's always good when you read the Bible, like, put yourself in the story for a second. Like, can you imagine being the blind guy at this point, right? Like, you know when you, like, lose one of your senses, like, the other senses get heightened, right? So he can't see, so he can probably hear really well. So all of a sudden, there, he hears this conversation going on sudden, and Jesus goes, uh, just hold on. <laughs> right? And then he, like, hears him, like, you know, like, down there on the floor doing something. And next thing you know, there's stuff on his eyes. And he's like, no way that just happened, right? Like, there's no way this dude just put spit on my eyes. And so it's just, it's just funny stuff. The Bible is hilarious if you read it right. So, so Jesus is like, Jesus is all right, go wash. And the blind guy's like, no problem. I will gladly do that. So he goes and he washes the mud off his eyes. And all of a sudden he can see. It's a miracle. And he's healed. And it's such a miracle. It's so surprising that the rest of the people around him, when they see him walking down the street and he can see, they're like, who is this? Like, it can't be that guy. He's been blind, like, his whole life. Like, what happened to you? And he's like, Jesus healed me. They're like, no way, Jesus healed you. So they drag him in front of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees start questioning him, like, what is going on here? Like, who are you, and how did you get healed? He's like, Jesus healed me. He's like, there's no way Jesus healed you. Jesus, that guy, he's a sinner. Sinners can't do stuff like this. And I love verse 25. The guy responds to the Pharisees. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you about the sin thing, but I know this dude healed me. He gave me my sight. And he goes on proclaiming the truth of Jesus and refusing to bow to their lies anymore. 
He had been captive. He had suffered for years and years due to lies, due to injustice, due to this, this stigma that was put on him by false pretense. But Jesus sets him free. He protects him from the bondage of living under this lie day in and day out. Next one is John chapter 12. Jesus protects from wars on our worship. Here we have Mary and Jesus. And actually, we have the whole family. So Jesus went over to Mary and Martha's house uh, for dinner. And this is like right after he's just raised Lazarus from the dead, right? And so he's there for dinner. That's kind of the least thing you can do when somebody, you know, brings you back from the dead and all. So they invite Jesus over for dinner. And Martha's running around preparing everything. You know, she's, she's being busybody Martha, which is kind of her MO. And Lazarus, he's just chilling at the table with, with Jesus eating because after you, you know, die and come back, you kind of get a pass on like a lot of stuff. And so he's just sitting there with Jesus enjoying the meal. And Mary, though, Mary's not going to miss her opportunity. Mary comes in. And it says in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She is showing Jesus here an extravagant act of worship. Right? She's like, this is how much I love you. And Judas, one of the disciples there, he gets all bent out of shape. He's like, what are you doing? Like, that's a waste. Putting that on somebody's feet. Are you kidding me? We could sell that and have all this money to feed the poor or you know, line my own pockets or whatever, like, because he was stealing money and stuff. And so he's like, this could be a thing. And, but Jesus, he won't stand for it. He's like, no, no, no. Verse seven, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He's like, she's doing a wonderful, beautiful thing. Don't try to take this from her. We actually said something similar. And again, in one of the other gospels, when we first meet Martha and Mary, Jesus again is over at their house for dinner or whatever, and Martha's running around being all busy, and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to Jesus teach and talk. And Martha comes in, she gets all bent out of shape and puffed up, like, Jesus, I'm around here working, and Mary's not doing nothing. Why can't you tell her to help me? And Jesus is like, no. This is the good thing. I'm not going to take this from her. This is a posture of worship. Jesus loves when his people worship him, when they give themselves to him in worship of the Lord. And he will protect that. When your heart is pure, when you're in it for the right reasons, when you're going after Jesus, he will protect anything or anyone that tries to steal that worship from you. Jesus also protects from harm. Look at John chapter 18. This is kind of coming to the end of Jesus' road now. It's actually the night before he is going to be crucified. He's in the garden. He's praying. He's talking to the Father, preparing for this great trial. He has all the disciples around him. And Judas leads the officers in to arrest him, right, to take him in. And, and they come in, and they start speaking to Jesus, and this whole scene starts to unfold. And in verse 7, it says this. It says, so he asked them again. Jesus asked the officers, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus was protecting his disciples from harm. He's like, you don't need them. They're not a part of this. You want me, here I am, let's go. Even though that was gonna lead to an, a, a, a rigged trial and an unjust verdict and eventually his own death on the cross, he said, no, 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 they're fine. Let them go, you can have me. I'm right here. And Jesus protects his loved ones from harm. Next chapter over, chapter 19 
Jesus also protects from despair. Here in the very final moments of Jesus' life, as he hung there on the cross dying, he continued to love and shepherd and protect his own. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. See, at this point in Jesus' life, we haven't heard anything about Joseph in a long time, right? We don't know what really what happened to Joseph. The Bible doesn't tell us if he died or if something else happened, but it seems like he has not been in the family picture for a while. And so if Joseph is gone in this culture, the eldest son now has the responsibility to care for the mother. And as a woman, if you didn't have a, a, a husband or an eldest son to care for you, you were pretty much destitute, right? You, you, you were out on the street, you were begging, you were having to find, you know, scraps here, and like you did not have anyone to care for you or take care of you or provide for you. And so Jesus is getting ready to die, and Mary, he sees his mom, and he's like, she's got nobody. Not only is she losing her son, and she's watching him die, she's looking ahead to her future, thinking, I've got nothing to go to. And Jesus, in his final breath, uses it to say, no, I got this. He's going to take care of you. This right here, you guys are now family. And he was protecting her from despair and destitution. I know some of you are thinking, that's great and all, Micah, and, and, but what if, what if you're not one of God's loved ones? What if you're not in that inner circle, right? What if, what, if, what if you're not one of the ones that God actually loves? Then what protection is there? And I would say, I would challenge and say, he does love you. And he wants to love you and he wants to protect you from one of the worst things of all in this life. In Luke chapter 23 this will be on the screen for you because I know it's out of context here with John. But Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross. Again, in some of his final moments. And if you know anything about the story of Jesus' crucifixion, he was crucified with two thieves, one on each side. And he's hanging there, he's dying, and one of the thieves starts to mock Jesus and jeer at Jesus. Right Now, now these guys are thieves. They deserve to be there. They are getting the just punishment for their crimes. Jesus does not. He's the innocent party in this whole thing. And one of the soldiers starts mocking him and jeering at him. And if you're really God, then save you and save us and take us off this cross. And, and the other thief is like, are you crazy, dude? Like, you're about to, like, be done on this earth and, you, and you're going to use your last moments to do this? Like, how hard is your heart? And then in verse 42, that th second thief turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he humbled himself. And in that moment, without saying a whole lot, Jesus knew his heart. and He was humbly repenting and confessing and saying, I'm wrong and I messed up and Jesus, help me. Save me. Fix this. Protect me from the wrath and, and the hell that I am headed to on the other side of this cross. And in verse 43, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Heaven. In that moment, everything changed. Just a few minutes prior, this guy was for sure headed to an eternity in hell. And by one 
thought, one request, one turning of the heart away from sin and humbly repenting before Jesus, everything changed. And he was assured heaven with God himself. And just like he was a sinner and he deserved God's holy wrath and was headed for eternity in hell, we as sinners deserve the same thing. And short of having a relationship with Jesus, that's where all of us are heading as well. But even as he hung there on the cross, dying for that man's sins, he still loved him and forgave him. And he'll do the same for you. Jesus knows. God knew that we were broken, that we were sinners, that we could not fix that. And so the whole reason he sent his son to come and to be born in a manger to a virgin as a human and to walk this earth was to live a perfect, sinless life so he could go to the cross and be our substitute. To stand in our place and take our sin and take our guilt and die on a cross so that we don't have to. And he went into the grave. Three days later, he rose back to life to prove once and for all, that he is who he says he is. He is the mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the everlasting Father. And he is willing to love and forgive anything in your life. Past, present, future. But it requires that we do what this thief did, which is come to him with humble, repentant, hearts and say, Jesus, help me. I'm a sinner. I can't fix this. Help me. Save me from my sin. And if you do that, not only from that moment on will Jesus protect you from the guilt and condemnation and wrath of your sin, he will protect you just like all the other stories we just read from the book of John. If you haven't done that yet, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, I urge you, do that today. Like, don't keep waiting. Don't keep risking it. Like, today is a great day for Jesus to save and protect you from everything you've got stored up. He loves you. He wants to do that. He is indeed a loving, protective, everlasting Father. Some of you have heard my testimony before, and you know that my parents divorced when I was fairly young. And I remember after my parents divorced, um, my family was confused and hurting and drowning and just like lost in a lot of ways. And um, us kids lived with my mom during the week and then we saw my, we saw my dad every other weekend. It was kind of the, the arrangement that we had. And so we got, you know, um, we were all out of church for a long time. And when we finally started getting back into church, we kind of bounced around to, from a couple different crazy churches and then finally kind of landed in a good, you know, gospel-centered, uh, Jesus-preaching uh, church. and. And, um, you know, my, my, the whole time we were going through that, my parents loved me. They did. My, parent, my mom loved us well, but she was, you know, no, no real education, struggling to support three kids, working crazy hours. And then I only saw my dad three or six days a, a month. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of time there. And so I remember during this time, my, my understanding of love and my, my picture of what love was really got kind of messed up and got distorted and kind of got out of whack in some ways. And and I remember when we, first, when we finally found that church there in Farmington, we started going to that church regularly. There was a couple in that church, they actually was my youth pastor and his wife, Tim and Janet, who just came and just, just really loved us well. Me and 
my mom and my family, and they came around us and they just supported us. And, I, and really the whole church did, but them specifically just really poured into our lives. And I remember they completely started to change my view, my understanding, and my, my belief in what real love looked like. And there were a lot of years where Tim was kind of the, the, the number one father figure in my life, mainly because of time. Like he, I, we just spent a lot of time together. And, and he walked out in front of me what it meant to love like God loves, to love like Jesus loves. And that's what Jesus came to do, was to be that model for us of the everlasting father. He's a father of love, and here's what it looks like. Here's how you love someone. Here's how you lead someone. Here's how you protect someone. This is what I want you to do. This is what I came to do for you. Jesus wants to be the love of God in your life. He wants to connect you back to the Father in this loving, everlasting relationship. Jesus doesn't just call me to God. He connects me to God's love. It's not just like, come over here and see this, or come, here, here's what it's all about, now you go figure it out. It's, no, no, come to me. Jesus says, come to me and I will be the bridge. I will be the one that connects you back to the love of the everlasting Father. He came to love. He came to protect. And so the last point today is this. I need Jesus to lovingly pull me back up. I need Jesus to lovingly pull me back up when I fall down. And we all do at times. And if you're new to Harvest, let me just save you the suspense. There are zero perfect people in this church. Like, like if you're looking for a church that's got it all figured out and everybody like, this is the wrong place, man. Because we fall and we fail and we hurt. And we all need sometimes for Jesus to pick us back up to illustrate this for you, the story I'm going to use is Matthew 14. Again, I'll have some of this on the uh, screen for you as well. But in this story, Jesus has just finished some time with his disciples and teaching, and he needs a break. And so he sends his disciples off in the boat to start crossing the lake. And so he's going to go and pray. And he goes and prays for a while, and eventually he's going to meet up with them. While they're out on the lake, this huge storm kicks up, and it's all crazy, and the wind and the waves, and everything's going psycho. And, and, and Jesus decides he's just going to go meet them out in the boat. And so, you know, being God and all, he just starts walking across the water, right? And so he starts walking up to the boat, and the, and the guys are fighting everything, and they look out, and, they're, and they think they're losing it. And they're like, who, who is that? Is, it, is that Jesus? Or am, I, am I seeing things? Do you see that? Like, it looks like a ghost out there walking on that. Surely that's not Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, it's really me. This is it. It's okay. Don't be afraid. And then look at verse 28. It says, and Peter answered him. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus is like, no, it's me. Peter's like, if it's you, if it's really you, 
If you really are who you say you are, if you really are God, if you really are the everlasting Father, then, then, then tell me to come out. Tell me to come to you, Jesus. Right? I want to be with you. I want to be near you. I want to be under your care. I want us to be together. Like, if that's you, then, then tell me to come. And Jesus, like always, says, you want to come? Come. Come on. That's always Jesus' posture. When, when we call out to him, when we cry out, he always says, yeah, come. I'm ready. Come. So Peter steps out, and he starts to walk on the water. Now, a lot of people kind of dog Peter right here, right, because, like, he eventually starts to sink and all. But can we just, just take a moment there and realize here that Peter walked on the water. Like, even if it's, like, three steps, that's, like, when you were a kid and you were swimming in the pool, did you ever try that? Like, you're just, like, running? Like, you're running, you, like, try to keep running on the water, and you just, right? Like just, nobody here has ever done that. But Peter did. He stepped out, and he started to go to Jesus, and let me just tell you, friends, when, when you are, when you're really in tune with Christ, when you're really following after Jesus, when you love him and you are after him, that's what life feels like. It feels like you're walking on water. There might still be a storm brewing around. There might be crazy stuff going on. There might be all kinds of problems and things. But when you're really tracking with Jesus and you've got that, you got your eyes fixed on him and you're following Jesus, man, it feels like you could walk on water. So Peter steps out. He starts to walk, but then he looks around. It says he saw the wind, he saw the waves, and he was afraid, and he began to sink. And again, that's all of us sometimes, right? Sometimes we're following Jesus, and we're tracking with Jesus, and then we look around, and something freaks us out, and we're like, oh, I don't know about that, and we start to sink. We start to fall. We get distracted, and we get scared, and we take our eyes off of Jesus, and we put them on other things. And in that moment, it says... Peter cried out to him, and Jesus immediately, I love that, I love that John, or I'm sorry, that um, Matthew puts that word in there, that immediately Jesus reached out and grabbed Peter. As soon as he cried out. That's what we need to do. When we fall, when, when we start to sink in our sin, when we start to sink in our failures, man, we need to cry out to Jesus so he can immediately reach down and pull us up. Confess, repent, and humbly ask him to help. He will immediately come running to that. He loves to run and help those who are seeking him. That is what an everlasting father does. This summer, our youngest was uh, out riding her bike around the cul-de-sac, and as always happens eventually, they just took a little spill on the concrete there and kind of, you know, banged herself up a little bit. And I would think I was in the garage or somewhere, and all of a sudden I, I just hear like this wailing coming from, if you've ever heard her, if you know our youngest, she can, she can, she can wail, man. So she is like crying uncontrollably in the cul-de-sac. So I run out there, and I kind of pick her up, and, and I take her in the house, I start cleaning her up. When I did that, when I came and got her and took her inside to help her, that did not surprise her at all. all right, she wasn't shocked that daddy came and got her. She wasn't, like that did not surprise her in the least because she knows I'm her father. She knows that I love her. She knows that that's exactly what she expected me. If I wouldn't have came, she probably would have been a little upset. Right? Sometimes we forget that that's how God sees us. Sometimes we forget 
that he is indeed the everlasting father who loves us. And we get surprised that he would help us when we fall into sin, when we fall into failure. We, I can't tell him this. I can't confess this. I can't bring this to God. It's like, what's he going to say? What's he going to think? I can tell you what he's going to say. He's going to say, I love you. I'm your father. Let me pick you back up again and dust you off and get you back right. We don't ever have to be scared about crying out to Jesus. Stop trying to do it alone. Stop trying to be the one who fixes it. Cry out to Jesus and let the love of the everlasting Father fix every problem. Jesus is my lifeline when I'm drowning in the sea of my failures. Jesus is the only lifeline when I am drowning in the sea of my failures and my sin and my hurt and my shame and my despair and whatever you've got going on. Jesus is waiting for you to cry out so he can reach down and pick you back up. No matter what it is in your life, I said it at the beginning, I'll say it again, my biggest weakness is no match for the strength of God's love. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter how you've messed up, no matter what you're feeling inside, no matter what you're battling with, none of it's too big for God's love to handle. He can take all of that. If you're hurting, if you're weak, if you're vulnerable, if you've failed, if you've fallen, God wants to meet you right there. He wants to meet you right in that need this Christmas season. The everlasting Father is just waiting to come running and pick you back up. If you'll ask him, if you'll cry out to the Lord. That takes something. It takes some humility. It takes me laying down my pride, being willing to admit that I was wrong, that I messed up, that I can't fix it. It takes something. But when we're willing to do that, what we get on the backside and the love of the Father is so much greater. So I'm just going to invite you to do that with me today. We're going to stand. Stand with me. We're going to pray. We're going to cry out to God and ask him to come and meet us in whatever it is that we're hurting in this Christmas season, whatever it is that we're struggling with right now. We're going to pray. We're going to cry out to the Lord, and we're going to sing a song that does the same. Just ask him to meet us here. Let his love just wash over whatever it is you're struggling with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come before you now, Lord. We thank you so much for who you are, for all that you've done, Lord, that you have sent your son, Lord, to come and rescue us. Father, we we believe today by faith that you are the perfect, loving, everlasting Father that we desire, that we need in our lives. Lord, your love and your grace and your protection are more than enough, more than enough to meet us in our deepest sin, in our deepest failure, in our deepest need. Lord, help us today. By the power of the Holy Spirit, come in this place and help us, Lord, to humble our hearts, to bow before you, to cry out for love and help. Father, we need you. 
We need you right here. We need you right now. Meet us here. Heavenly Father, we pray this in the powerful, wonderful, precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.